the volume. This Sessions is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. They're America's number one sportsbook for a reason, y'all. It's so easy to use. It's safe and secure. That's one of the main things for me. I don't want any BS. I love that there's no BS with FanDuel. Plus, you get your winnings fast. Now winnings are delivered in as quick as two hours. Plus, it's super fun to combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. It's awesome. So if you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with the promo code Renee, that's R-E-N-E-E, so that they know that I sent you. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, Wyoming, or West Virginia. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona 18887897777 or visit ccpg.org/chat for Connecticut 1800gambler or visit fanduel.com/rg for Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and Virginia 1877770stop for Louisiana 1800270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan 18778hopeny or text hopeny for New York Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 and 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming. Visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on this show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to, to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, so it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. What a good time for you guys to have a baby, huh? I mean, perfect timing for you to be home, have some downtime. Like as everything was winding down for you in terms of your contract with NXT and having Candace being pregnant, I mean, what were kind of the emotions you were going through with all that? I felt like I was in a good place. I felt this way for a while to where I felt like I accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish in NXT. That's kind of one of those things where I said, I talked about kind of betting on yourself because it is kind of a, a scary thing to have a, a new baby on the way and decide like, I'm going to turn down this new contract. That's a good contract, a safe contract. And you're going to get money every single week coming in uh, to kind of go off and do your own thing. Uh, but like, I felt really good. I felt just complete. And like I said, I felt that way for a long time, but being able to kind of, I guess, end that story on kind of on my own terms, like have that match, and then have like that promo segment to where I was kind of able to kind of say goodbye, which a lot of people don't get a chance to do nowadays. And like, I was very lucky to be given that chance. And mm -hmm. it's so funny because so many people thought yeah. that I resigned, obviously, because they're like, no one gets this treatment to where they're able to kind of do their match and then come out the next night on live television, which is, which is wild is live television. I could have literally said you had a very poetic exit. Yeah. And they kind of let me say anything I wanted. They, I went and I sat down with one of the writers, but all the words that came out were my own. I wrote my own thing. 
I, I wanted to thank people. I wanted to do things like that. Like I said, I feel like I just have such a good relationship, a good rapport with everyone in NXT and everyone in WWE in general that the saddest thing to me, and you could see the footage, like I was crying. Like I was literally crying. And I was crying uh, for a particular reason when I walked out is because I gave a present. I gave two presents. I gave a present to Matt Bloom and I gave a present to Shawn Michaels. I told Shawn the caveat was that he needed to open his present in front of me right before I went through the curtain. And Shawn's an emotional guy uh, and we have a great relationship. So I gave him this present and uh, he opens it and he starts crying. <laughs> and then a turn made me start crying. So that's when you watch the show, I'm coming out and I'm crying already. It's because like, we had that moment right before I went through the curtain. What was the present? Can you say what the present was? I did like tribute gear to him at an in your house uh, takeover event. And like I had a headband and uh, no one in the world has a piece of any of the takeover gear I've worn. Uh, so me and Candace the night before did a little shadow box and uh, we did a shadow box with a headband in it. And we did a picture of me and him dressed in the gear. And then me and him when I was a kid, when I met him. So like kind of side-by-side pictures. Oh, that just gave me like goosebumps. I know, yeah. And then I wrote a nice message on the back as well about how much he's meant to me and how much he's meant to my career and things like that. So uh, I was able to give that to him right before I went through the curtain. And obviously he started crying. I started crying. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's funny because Candace has never seen me cry. So that was kind of the first time she's ever seen me cry. Wait, Candace has never seen you cry? What? Never seen me cry. So like she was very adamant that... If I didn't cry when the baby was born, I was going to be in big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Fair enough. If if Sean gets your tears, Quill also deserves your tears. Yes, of course. Of course. Uh, But yeah, so to be able to kind of do that and have that moment, I was going to miss is I was going to miss like the place. I was going to miss the people. I'm sure, you know, like the thing you miss is like you're around these people for six years. You're just gone. Like you're like you're in this bubble. And I do call it a bubble because it is a bubble where you're in this bubble for so long. I was in the bubble for six years. And I was extremely lucky to where I never really had any injuries. I was on TV consistently, in storylines consistently for six years to where I'm just around it at all times. Uh, and I, especially with the performance center, that's the kind of a weekly thing, you know? Like I would go in and I'd work out and I'd go in and I'd see people. Like that was a thing that would happen for me for six years. And now it's kind of just, it's gone. In wrestling, it's a weird thing to where like, we all still live in Orlando. Like I, we're still in Orlando, but like you don't see people anymore. <laughs> You just don't see him anymore. And I think that was the, the the hardest part, especially with like the way I saw NXT going and like with Adam leaving and the Kyle contracts coming up and, and everyone kind of out the door. Like we were around all these people for so long. And then you kind of look around the locker room and like all your friends are gone. It affects you. Like it hurts you because you're like, now you're not seeing your friends anymore on a, on a daily basis. And it just, it makes you sad. So at that point, like I felt like, I don't know, I have a chance to kind of tell my story and end it the right way and also kind of leave on great terms to where, you know, whatever happens in the future happens, but I can kind of take this time now to be around Candace, to be around Quill, enjoy dad life for a little bit. Cause it, 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 it's just funny how things work out to where I was able to kind of time that out. It was not on purpose. It was definitely not on purpose, but I think everything happens for a reason. And, uh, it gave me a great opportunity. It's really wild how that does happen too. And like you kind of look around and the moment in time that you had that you were able to capture with those six years was kind of like that lightning in a bottle situation of like you said, of having consistent storylines, always being on TV, not having injuries that once you see that, okay, I feel like that chapter's kind of done now to now figure out what to do. So did it feel like the writing was on the wall for you to leave or were you kind of waffling back and forth at any point? 
I kind of made my mind up like a year in advance that this was going to be my last. That's pretty crazy considering how much changes has had happened within that last year as well. I know, like, like, and like, like people said, like, oh, Johnny left because NXT changed. No, like, I was always, I kind of had it in my mind that, uh, and like, I wasn't leaving to go to any particular place. I kind of just felt like I needed to, to go because I felt like if you watch a TV show or if you watch anything in general, if you see the same character, and obviously I changed character, I turned heel, I did funny stuff, I did things like that here and there. Uh, but if you see the same person on TV for five years, six years, it gets stale. I believe that being off TV and being away, makes people miss you. And I think people need to have a chance to miss you. And if they don't, then they don't really care in general. So I felt like the last year, I was like, I'm going to have fun this past year and I'm going to do whatever I can to try to set this place up for the future. That's why me and Candace focused a lot on Indy Hartwell. We wanted to give Indy a, a good spot. We wanted to give Austin Theory a good spot. Uh, we wanted to help out as much as possible. I wanted to try and give guys opportunities that they wouldn't have gotten to have a, a long match with Kushida at a takeover. I was really proud I was able to give him that spotlight as well. Um, it was really important for me to try to help as many people as possible before I left to kind of set that place up for a good spot for the future. And honestly, like it's, it's no secret that in this day and age, uh, the age of mental health and social media and things like that, I felt like I was beaten down. And I felt like mentally, I'm sure there, there is the stigma of you're in the public eye. You need to have thick skin. But at the end of the day, we're all humans <laughs> and we can only take so much. That is like really a bullshit phrase when you think about it, that I know that that's been pounded into our heads for so long. But like just because you want to be an entertainer does not mean that you should also have to sacrifice being berated or being, you know, the, the, the stuff that just happens online to, you know, all the different things that kind of come with that. I genuinely I genuinely love NXT. But like for so long, people like were like, when's Johnny going to move to Raw and SmackDown? When's Johnny going to do this? When's Johnny going to do that? And it just that, that constant question and that constant like people saying like, go do this, go do that. And like trying to take control of my career and what I want to do. Because like, honestly, like what I want out of wrestling is just I want to be able to have creative freedom. I want to be able to have these matches, tell these stories and kind of just have fun. And the minute it's not fun, the minute it becomes a job and it becomes stress, and just you're constantly beat down by stress is when I don't want to be a part of it anymore. So I kind of felt like the past year, uh, hearing everything on social media, dealing with all this crap, I was kind of like, I, I want to take this year, put my all into it, kind of leave on good terms, uh, kind of take a break. And uh, luckily it worked out where he had a baby. Uh, and I don't know if the baby like finalized my decision because I had the idea that I wasn't going to resign. But uh, I think if the baby wouldn't be on the table and they came to me with a, a different, I, who knows, who knows what would have happened, but the baby kind of came into play and I was like, okay, I definitely need to be in the best headspace as good a headspace as possible for when this baby gets here. So I need to completely detach from the wrestling stuff for a little bit and focus on him and uh, focus on all that stuff. It's crazy how the universe works like that. Cause even as I was winding down my time with WWE and I was like, yeah, you know, I would love to have a baby. I'm at that age. It's time to do that. And I'm ready to do it. I was like, so into making that happen in the, the year prior when I was with WWE, it just like was not happening, getting frustrated literally within that next month after I left WWE, I was like, Oh shit, I'm pregnant. What? And it's like, it's so weird how stuff like that, just like it, things work out the way that they're supposed to work out. And like, it's, it's pretty cool. 
But during that time, I mean, of those, you know, from the beginning time of you joining NXT to that final year, how much did start to change as, you know, the the powers that be started to change within NXT? I'm sure the creative aspect of things within NXT started to change as they started to swing over into NXT 2.0. Um, what kind of changes were you seeing uh, within that just in terms of like putting the show together and your character and your control over your creative? So I was... Very lucky. Obviously, from the time I started to the time I ended in NXT, things were vastly different just because I had, uh, when I first started, I was kind of brought in as an extra. And that's, that's, those, I was literally brought in as an extra. Uh, me and Tommaso. That's so crazy. Yeah, our story's been told a million times, but like literally we did a tryout where we were told, no, there isn't a spot for us in NXT, but we might be doing this dusty classic thing that maybe we'll put you guys in for like as a one off. So we did the dusty classic, it went well. And uh, William Regal was obviously like a big liaison for us that would always try to get us on the show because he knew there was potential there. He knew what we had in us. Every week I had to either text Regal or text the writer at the time, Ryan Ward, and say like, hey, like, are we going to be used? And they're like, yeah, we'll bring you down for another extra spot or another extra spot. We always hear this thing like, maybe we'll give you this weird contract where you could still do indies, but we'll also have you do NXT when that was being discussed at the time. Is that what was considered like the second tier contract or something? Yeah, that? Okay, like Samoa Joe it. was going to be under it. Like when he initially was brought, it was a, it's a weird thing that never ended up happening because legal was like, wait a minute, what are we doing here? We can't do this. <laughs> I was reading about that last night. I was going to ask you about that. I'm like, did that ever happen? That seems so crazy. It was talked about and I, don't, I had to bug Canyon Seaman literally every week and be like, is this contract happening or not? And he'd be like, it's happening. We just got to go through legal. It, it never happened. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so legal like, was like, no. It got to the point where it was going to happen. And this is even funnier how this works out. It was going to happen. They sent us to Pittsburgh to get medicals to like get the process going on that. Tommaso's medical came back bad because like his shoulder or something needed surgery. And Hunter was like, well, if his shoulder needs surgery, how about we just sign him, move him to Orlando, and we'll pay for the surgery and everything. And we'll just give him a full-time deal. Obviously, they felt like me and Tommaso, for some point reason, was a package deal. So like, oh, Johnny's got to move too. And I was like, what the hell? Like I had this sweet deal worked out where I was going to be able to live in Cleveland and still do stuff. And now I got to move to Orlando. So uh, they signed us to full-time deals, moved us to Orlando. Me and Candace literally got married, I think like the week or two before we moved to Orlando. So we got married, never got a honeymoon or anything because we had to move to Orlando to report for NXT. You still have not had a honeymoon? Not really, no. Oh my gosh. Well, now uh, you're not going to get one for a no, while. It's but <laughs> Yeah. And then we moved to Orlando and uh, Tommaso moved in, We moved into a big apartment. Tommaso's wife was still living in Milwaukee. Uh, so it was just me, Candace and Tommaso living in a, an apartment in Orlando a week or two after we got married. So that's literally how our first experience went. But that, so like, then we started there and we were always still kind of looked at as kind of indie guys, extra guys, small guys, things like that. And especially during that time period, uh, before the Cruiserweight Classic, the kind of indie-ness of NXT didn't really exist yet. The indie wrestling still kind of had a bad rap. Like you were still kind of looked down upon before the Cruiserweight Classic happened and then everything kind of blew up and everyone got signed. Uh, but like from the time period I started to the time period that I ended on, I gained so much trust, I feel, with the people in power. Uh, I gained so much trust with basically everyone in the office to where I always had a pretty good say on things I did and didn't do. Like I would always be able to write my promos. I would always be able to give input. They'd ask me what I want to do creatively. Uh, so that never changed my whole time. Like maybe like about like 
two to three years in is when I started to get that after like I started main eventing takeovers and having big matches and things like that. And then especially towards the end, I was allowed to do a lot of things that I wanted to do. So I never really saw, personally, I never really saw that big of a change. It was always consistent for me. I don't know if this is even like a thing at all anymore, but kind of like the word on the street that they didn't want indie guys again, like currently, because obviously that was the thing for a while. I mean, you look at all the guys that were signed that became these huge stars within the company and then starting to move away from that again. Um, What do you know about that or think about that? From what I understand, they're still going to sign indie people, but they want to go away from just the sole full classes of indie people. They want some NCAA people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is how it was originally as well, which I completely understand in the sense of where any NCAA person they sign, someone that comes from a different walk of life that are just genetic freaks. That's basically a lottery ticket. Like you're buying a lottery ticket. This person could turn out to be the next Kurt Angle. You never know. So, I mean, I totally understand bringing those people in, giving them opportunities and seeing what they turn out to be. I am always going to go more towards the indie wrestling route because that's where I'm from. That's my background. That's what I believe in. I believe in my heart. That's why I kind of lean towards the more uh, indie Hartwell, Cora Jades of the world. And again, that's not taking anything away from those guys, but I firmly believe that you can pay someone to learn a headlock. You can pay someone to learn a wrist lock. You cannot pay someone to love this. You cannot pay someone to love wrestling. And when you're an indie wrestler and you had to pay to train, you had to travel all over and take $5, you have to love this. Because if you don't love this, you ain't going to be doing it. So I'm always going to lean towards more giving those people opportunities. I feel like they just want it. And I I relate to them so much. How about eight-year-old you getting in the ring for the first time? Yeah. As a baby. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Baby. Yeah. So what happened? There was like an independent that was running in the back of your dad's restaurant. Is that right? Yeah. So there was an independent wrestling company in Cleveland, Ohio that uh, my dad obviously knew I was a huge wrestling fan. So this indie company came and approached my dad because he has a catering company with a huge parking lot filled with gravel. And they kind of came to him like, Hey, can we run a show in your back parking lot? And my dad was like, yeah, of course. My son's a huge wrestling fan just as long as you let my son get in the ring. Like, yeah, sure, no problem. No problem at all. <laughs> they, they ran a show. Jimmy Superfly Snooka was on the show. Frog Splash, baby, coming in hot. I know. And uh, like, so they, they ran the show. And thinking about this now in 2022 is kind of cuckoo bananas. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. So the show, like, I guess they were, they were running a little bit behind. So like, we need to kill time. And me being a chubby eight-year-old Johnny Organo, I had wrestling gear that my mom made me, which was uh, essentially like we went to a thrift store and got like like ladies, like spandex tights. And uh, I got like a leather vest and my mom was very crafty. So she like painted the tights. And like I had my like my snow boots, which was like my wrestling boots. And like my name was Jag, by the way. My real name is John Anthony Gargano. So Jag was my wrestling name. And I had my friend who kind of had like a fan of the opera gimmick as well. He had like a weird, weird fan of the opera face. So we, of course I had my gear with me and they're like, Hey, do you want to let your son get in the ring with his friend before the show starts and have a match? And they're like, yeah, sure. So like me and my friend got in the ring. We weren't trained. We were kind of having like what you would expect two eight-year-olds to look like having a wrestling match. We did that. And it's still one of the most vivid memories in my mind. My finisher at the time was called the jagged rock. It was a perfect plex. And uh, in the moment, I'm picturing it as clear as day. 
I hooked the perfect plex. And like thinking back in my head, it is the most beautiful perfect plex this side of Kurt Hennig. Like it is, it is amazing. In my little eight-year-old brain, I'm like, I freaking killed it. I just had the best thing ever. Yeah, it's yeah. So that's that's how that was my induction to wrestling. Was uh, my first match was technically at eight years old. What was it like growing up with a, a dad that was a restaurant tour? You guys must have had amazing meals. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, obviously, I, I mentioned that I was a chubby eight-year-old kid. There's a reason for that. It's because <laughs> my dad owned <laughs> an food. Italian restaurant. Uh, so every day from school, I would come home from school. I would come to my dad's restaurant from school, and my dad would have just the biggest plate of cheese ravioli you could possibly imagine. And I would just sit at the bar, which is another, like another weird thing of my childhood that I guess I don't discuss enough. Like my dad owned a restaurant, but he also owned a bar. Like, and the bar was operational. Most of my childhood was spent just kind of sitting at a bar watching like Nickelodeon while people were like getting hammered, like down the bar, like old men just having a hard day at work, like just like going through it like discussing their life to this bartender and here little eight-year-old Johnny Gargano just freaking ripping cheese ravioli, just watching Nicktoons on the, on the television, literally right there. Did you work at the restaurant? Yes. So I worked at the restaurant when, uh, I worked at the restaurant basically my whole childhood. But then when I graduated from high school, because I decided I wasn't going to go to college, I was going to just train to be a wrestler. Instead, I decided to work for my dad as well. So I worked Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to like 3 p.m. at my dad's restaurant doing catering and helping them out. And then uh, I would go and I'd wrestle on the weekend. So that was how I spent like the first maybe four or five years of uh, my wrestling career. Damn. And your mom's Polish, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Does she make a hell of a pierogi? She she does. She does. She, she makes pierogi. Wow. <laughs> you are waffling on that answer. <laughs> I don't know if she would say she makes a hell of a pierogi by herself. She buys store-bought pierogies and cooks them. Okay, sure. Okay. We'll <laughs> take it. We'll up. take it. <laughs> Um, you going from being chubby eight-year-old Johnny Gargano into now shredded Johnny Gargano, what was that journey like for you to, to start getting into like the physical aspects of being a pro wrestler? So I always knew, and I think everyone knows that wrestling is a superficial business, obviously. And being a, a smaller guy, you got to kind of bring something to the table. And um, I kind of didn't really figure out dieting and things like that until obviously probably maybe into my NXT career. At that point, I decided to hire a nutritionist. So I hired a nutritionist. I started working with him, obviously working out a lot more. Working with a nutritionist really helped me get dialed in and uh, realize, you know, macro counting and nutrients and things like that. Because when you're first starting out, especially when you're on the indies, you're kind of ingrained in you that you need to get bigger. You need to get bigger. So like you would eat Subway and you get like double meat turkey sandwiches or you would get Chipotle burrito bowls. Like, that's just oh yeah, protein it up. I believe Triple H also had in his making the game uh, workout book, which I studied a lot as a child. That you need to go to Subway, you need to get a, a six inch turkey on wheat, and you got to get double meat. That's the meal you always got to get. <laughs> John still does that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the indie wrestler. That's what you do. It's how you <laughs> live as an indie wrestler. Apparently, I obviously didn't like realize uh, anything like that. But it's so funny how being a chubby eight-year-old kid, and then you get back into the, the mental aspects of all of this and being on television and having to be in the public eye constantly. Being a chubby eight-year-old kid, definitely to now being a 34-year-old adult, it's so funny how your mind plays tricks on you. Like I talk about how body dysmorphia is not discussed enough amongst 
the wrestling community. I feel like it needs to be a, a more discussed thing because so many guys that I feel, I feel I saw like a, a thread on Twitter of guys like talking about how they deal with body dysmorphia and you don't realize what it does to you. Even at my leanest, even when I had abs for days and things like that, I still saw myself as chubby. I still saw myself as imperfect. I still like saw the little imperfection. I'm like, oh, I'm still loose here. I'm still like, like that. And being a kid who grew up in a restaurant, I love food. I'm a fat kid at heart. I love to eat. That's like my favorite thing to do. So to take that away from me and kind of uh, have to dial in diets and then like look on television and see yourself. And like, I have a fat kid body. Like I see myself on television. I'm like, oh, I look horrible. I look so bad. And that like plays with you mentally. But that's another big part of why I was like, I don't want to be on TV anymore for a little bit. And I was like, I want to kind of just relax and not have to worry about thinking I'm a imperfect, ugly looking person on television for a little bit. It is really crazy what happens. I had um, Dax on and we were talking about body dysmorphia with that as well, because he he was very open about his struggles with it and bulimia and a bunch of different things that fall under that umbrella, especially for men. We don't talk about it. I mean, women, we put everybody under the microscope all the time and we're always feeling those effects. But men never talk about that. And we never think like, hey, maybe this guy's going through some stuff, too, or the way that you see yourself. Or, I mean, because I would never in my life imagine that you go through something like that. I just see shredded Johnny. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a big reason why I feel so strongly about talking about it. Because I feel like if I'm going through it, there's definitely hundreds of people that wrestlers or not wrestlers that are going through it as well. And they're going to see me and see my body and be like, if this guy feels this way, like why? Like it, it, it's just a very real thing that's a kind of never going to go away in my head. <laughs> like I said, I'm a chubby eight-year-old kid. And it's one of those things where I've learned to kind of live with it and deal with it. And I, I realize what I'm doing in the moment. I'm like, if I see myself and I'm like, I look horrible. I'm kind of like, do you really look horrible? Or is that just your brain kind of tricking you to say like, you do look horrible? Which is, I don't know. It is a total mind fuck though. Cause I mean, yeah, we, like I said, we all go through that. And like, even now after having a baby where I'm like, what is happening? We're like, if I'm in clothes, things might be all right. But as soon as I'm like, wait, what is this skin? What's happening over here? That's like, it's so hard not to analyze every little inch of your body and to not be so hard on yourself all the time. Um, when do you feel your best? I never. <laughs> never. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> I know. I, but like, I, I'm as honest as I possibly can. There was never a moment, and this may just be coming from like a really insecure childhood of mine. Like I said, being a chubby kid, never feeling like he's good enough. Wrestling was the only thing I was good at and the only thing I am good at. So like wrestling became my identity to where like, if I wrestled really well, people would love me. And like, that's such a slippery slope in itself because not everyone's going to love you. But if you have like the mindset to where if I do a really good match, like everyone's going to love me and I'm going to get that love I, I need. But then you go on Twitter and you see someone say you suck. Then you just think, oh, I, I do suck. And it could be, like I said, it could be 500 people saying that was the best match I've ever seen. The one person that says... Johnny Organo was the worst wrestler in the world. That's going to be the one I remember. That's going to be the one that sticks with me. Any match I had that's like praised or any, any match that people liked, every single time I come through the curtain, anyone that was in Gorilla can tell you this. I walk through the curtain and I just say, was that okay? Like, was that fine? And it could be 15,000 people in Barclay Center losing their freaking mind. But I'll still come through the curtain and be like, was, that, was everything okay with that? You guys fine with that? And like, you can ask Candace. so many nights were spent at the hotel of me just like, sitting there kind of depressed and being like, I could have did better. Like I could have done more. Like I, I left an opportunity on the table where I could have done this. And so much of that just comes from a place of insecurity and 
That's why I think right now is a really tricky part for me because like wrestling's out of my life. Yeah, I was going to say, is that giving you like another identity crisis, knowing that wrestling is your thing and to not be doing that right now? How does that make you feel? That's the thing. Like, so wrestling's out of my life right now. And there's so much uncertainty in my mind in the wrestling world because I don't really know where I fit in. I don't know where I want to be. I don't know what I want to do. And with wrestling being out of my life, that is my one identity. Like I'm Johnny Gargano, the wrestler. You're Johnny Wrestling. Johnny the wrestler. Like what? Yeah, I'm Johnny Wrestling. <laughs> yeah. and I'm not Johnny Wrestling. Then who am I? So I'm having kind of an existential crisis in itself to where I'm going through that. Is that like a weird thing? Does that keep you up at night? I feel like when I go through moments like that, I'll like wake up sometimes and I'm like, <gasps> I just like, it, it's a weird thing. Cause I, I sort of feel displaced sometimes like that as well. And it can be such an odd thing to go through. So we talk about how everything happens for a reason. I think like having Quill now, that's let me not think about it that much. And I've, I've so focused in on taking care of him and being Vercandis and doing the best I can for him that I'm not really thinking about like the future. I'm just thinking about the now, which is kind of a nice mindset to have. Obviously, there's still that little bug in the back of my head that's saying like, you're going to have to do something eventually. <laughs> hey, guys, if you're here listening to the sessions, thank you. Hello. Hi. And you love some combat sports, well, be sure to check out Boxing with Chris Mannix. It's every Friday as he talks with the biggest names in boxing, UFC, and yes, even the occasional wrestling superstar. Chris is one of the most passionate and influential voices in the sport, and he's here every week to help you get smarter on all things boxing. He'll also help you win some money on FanDuel with his weekly betting segment where he breaks down the best bets for all the big fights. Download Boxing with Chris Mannix only here on the Volume Podcast Network. What about your relationship with Vince? I mean, you guys got to work together so much for a period of time. What was your relationship like with him, working with him that closely? So I did the, I had the the Vince's son storyline and it was... The biggest thing ever. I The 15th anniversary episode of Raw, I had the opening segment. I had two or three other segments during the show, including a pose down with Hulk Hogan. And then the closing shot was me pouring beer on Vince during a Stone Cold beer bash, like a midget from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. This shouldn't happen. Like it was the craziest story ever. And like every week, twice a week, working with him, two TVs a week, insane. I always regret like not asking him random things because he would have like, instead of him being on his Blackberry, be like, Hey, tell me about Sid or Hey, what really happened with you and nails? Give me the scoop or like just random things. Hey, how was Mr. T the first time? Just stuff like from when I was a fan that I always wanted to know that he definitely would have answered and talked to me about because he's just open and he doesn't care and likes to be taken away from his business quite a bit. But he was awesome. He's the ultimate perfectionist. I always say that too. Like he will reshoot and reshoot and reshoot and reshoot until it's exactly how he wants. But when he gets it, he's happy. Yeah. Those are when those moments are happening and you're like, oh my gosh, we're redoing this. I've had moments when like, I remember we were doing some, there was a storyline where Vince was being carted off to like the precinct in Brooklyn and I had to shoot something outside the precinct and we were like doing it live. And like, I was like being like a real reporter and I was like, I'm not actually a reporter. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> 
And I was so nervous because Vince had to like walk by me. And it was like a really wordy, very like highbrow journalism thing. And I was like, holy fuck, I don't talk like this. Oh my God, I'm going to like, I'm going to stumble some words. I'm going to say something wrong. But that was one of those moments that I was like so worried that I was going to drop the ball. Thank God I did not. But it can, yeah, when he's in one of those moments, one of those moods when you know he wants things to be absolutely perfect, he's got it in his head the way that it needs to be. It can be like, Please don't let me be the one to screw up the shot. Oh, my God. My debut in 2006, we rehearsed me coming from the under the ring for the first time. For the first time, we did rehearsals, rehearsals, rehearsals. There was going to be a light, a green light under the ring. Fit was going to open the open the thing up, and I was supposed to scroll, come out. There was no light, and so I didn't come out. God damn it, where's the little guy? There's no light. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Next time, there's a light. There's no apron. So I don't come up four or five times. Every time went a little wrong. Third time I go, I come out from under, I hit my head on the ring. It's just one thing after another. I was like, this is going to be my first and last day. <laughs> it was not. You worked you know, quite they a while. Told me, like I was told it was going to be a six month run. And it was two weeks under 10 years, which is insane to me. So crazy. Okay, let's take it back to four years. It was four years old that you fell in love with professional wrestling, right? This goes back to uh, wrestling figures. I realized this the other night. I wouldn't be a professional wrestler if it weren't for wrestling figures. Because the Hasbro wrestling figures, the WWF Hasbros, my brother, my late brother had them. So those figures came out and I like steal them from him to play with them. And I was like, yep, I'm hooked. That's going to be me. Okay. So how do you go from falling in love with wrestling to becoming a professional wrestler? And I'm sure there were many obstacles that got in your way from point A to point B. How'd you do this? I had spine surgery when I was six. Um, most little people have to have it because of scoliosis and especially the dwarfism I have. Uh, it's very, very common. The first one paralyzed me for six months. Uh, the doctor tried to like, he's never done surgery on a little person and he tried to put a rod in my back and he hit a nerve and just knocked everything out of loop. And nowadays I would be sitting in three mansions uh, on the beach in Florida. But back then we just, my parents just wanted me to get better. They just wanted me to get fixed. So then I had another one. And the first thing the doctor says is no contact sports and no trampolines. I didn't listen, obviously. So that at like 12 and 13, it was during the Attitude Era and everyone was backyard wrestling. Kids were backyard wrestling. It was the cool thing to do. So we started doing that and we had, we built a ring and this and that, and that's that was our thing. And then I got trained. Um, Mr. Kennedy, Ken Anderson, he was a big part of my training. I got trained by him at 17. He got hired by WWE in 2005, I believe. In 2006, they were looking for a midget for Finley. And he put his name out there for me and was off to the races. So it's always been wrestling for you, but you've also dabbled in film. You've done some other movies. You got to be a part of some uh, a Muppets movie. You got to be a part of one of the Leprechaun movies, which kind of leads me into the the Peter Dinklage heat that's happening here. Because I want to talk. Oh, you mean fuck Peter Dinklage? Is that was that what you mean? Is that what you, you wanted to say? You <laughs> wanted to say. That. That's in and around what I was circling, but yes. Um, so like, let's talk about some of the stereotypes that you have gone through and in terms of like what to kind of counter what he was saying. So just to catch everybody up to speed that doesn't know, Peter Dinklage was very upset 
that Disney was trying to cast little people as the seven dwarfs and you can take it from there. If I wasn't born a little person, I wouldn't have become a professional wrestler. Simple. I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have had the career I had. If Elf wouldn't have been casting an angry little person, Peter Dinklage wouldn't be the star he is. He took that role, that check cashed just fine. Every role that he's done, for the most part, has been little people roles. Have there been a few that haven't been? Sure. 95% have been. All those checks cashed just fine. What pissed me off is he said he was like trying to be progressive. And you're not, because that would have been seven dream jobs for little people. Little people don't get roles made for them very often, especially major film roles. Disney doesn't do things on a small scale, especially their readaptations. The culture and the society we live in now, it is what it is. One red flag is waved and everything stops. And that's unfortunate. And for it to not be a bigger conversation, like I, I mean, who knows what he thinks about it now? It could have been a thing that, you know, he said in that situation and then maybe having a conversation with other people could have been like, oh, you know what? You're right. Maybe let's rehash this. Do you know what's going on with the Disney movie now? Have- I've heard they're still doing it. I've heard they're not. I've heard it's CGI. I've heard everything. Disney, call me, babe. What is your dream job? What, I mean, aside from you being able to have already accomplished your dream job within WWE, but you're a huge Muppets fan. You got to be in in one of those franchise movies. Like how cool that you've been able, you've been able to check off some like real bucket list shit, dude. Probably the only bucket list thing I would have done, like I would have made when I was growing up would have been WWE. I have like random things I want to do in life. Being in a Muppets movie wasn't on it. Having my name on a movie poster as the starring role in Leprechaun Origins wasn't on it. Making a book wasn't on it. All that stuff, like, I got to check it off a bucket list while adding it to the bucket list. It's a really weird thing. Um, I would love to do more acting because my body would tell me, hey, that's really a lot better for you. And I'm sure everyone around me would like me to do that more. So I would love to do that. I, I really would like to start to move into that realm. It's a very small realm. I, you know, for, for it's, it's a, the roles are few and far between, but I would love it. I, I, I would absolutely love it. I did stand up. I did a, a couple stand up things. How was that? It's the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done. That's like some butthole clenching shit. I can't blame someone else for fucking up. But it's fun. It's it's again a bucket list thing. And that was our, our buddy Nick, our, our, our oh, friend. Yeah, Nick he, man. he loves to make us jump in on those shows. He does. But I go to him for pointers, for stuff like that. And he tells me nine times out of ten, quit being stupid. You're gonna do great. And it's that's what I need. I mean, he lives and breathes stand-up comedy. I mean, that is his thing that I feel like he's probably constantly thinking about it and always working on things. And I mean, I've seen him. Are you doing, are you jumping on his DZ and friends show that he's doing in Dallas? I can't because I have the major pod. Oh man. That is really cool though. But doing stand-up is very, um, it's very, very scary. Didn't you do one of the shows with us? I did. No, I did. I did. I did Caroline's. I feel like I've done two of these shows with him. 
there it's always fun. It's such like a fun crowd and it's fun to like hear people like when you're so used to knowing someone as like the character on television, whatever, then you like hear some of like their deep, dark thoughts. It's like, wow. He did a show like 20 minutes from my house. And so I, I opened for him and I had no idea my parents came. As I'm walking up, I see my parents and I go, oh, my God, I got dick jokes. Oh, no. And I go, oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> so literally after I get off the stage, my mom comes up to me. She goes, you did great. Not grandma approved for sure. No. <laughs> but it was awesome. Well, when you're not like a seasoned stand-up comedian, you're like, well, I can't rewrite my set right now. This is what we're doing. I'm married to these five minutes. We have that's yeah, that's very, very stressful. Okay, taking things back to WWE for a second. You're talking about your time being under the ring and uh, you know, getting ready to come out, have that moment with fit. You've had a lot of moments under the ring. What's the weirdest shit you've seen under the ring? I fell asleep under the ring. This was completely real sleepiness. It was an overseas tour, which again, still real sleepiness. This is where it's mind blowing to me. I had to go under before the show. So now I would have been under like two and a half hours because Fit was in oh, the main event. Oh my that night. God. Yeah. Fit was in the main event. And so it was Big Daddy V, Kali, and Finley on one side against. Batista, Undertaker, and Kane on the other side. So not small men. Mm -mm. The whole show happened. Match is going. My spot is ready. The thing is, Undertaker takes a bump. Boom. Finley is going to come out of the ring and get the little guy out. Throw me in. Undertaker is going to sit up to meet the little guy in the middle of the ring. Happened all tour without a hitch. Great. That night, it did not. That night, little Dill was sleepy and real tired from the tour. Fit lifts the curtain and just sees me face down. And he's yelling, hey, hey. He thought one of the beams hit me and knocked me out. So I look up, just dreary. So what's up? Are you coming? I go, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Because now it hits me. I have to meet the undertaker in the middle of the ring, who's probably been waiting for me. I get out and I go, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, he throws me in. And now I realize again, the undertaker's there. And he's going to sit up and meet me face to face. Essentially, I get in and I'm in the middle of the ring in the middle of the match. I'm just in the middle going, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he meets me. We do the thing. I get to the back and I am shaking and everyone's laughing. Fit goes, what happened? I goes, I fell asleep. He goes, you what? I go, I fell asleep. First time for everything. Undertaker comes back, shakes his head, and I go, well, I'm fucked. I walk up to him. I said, I am so sorry. I, 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 he goes, what happened? I go, I fell asleep. He goes, you what? I go, I, I fell asleep, sir. I, I, I literally fell asleep under the ring. He goes, something I never thought I'd hear. I had the runners get a nice bottle of whiskey for the bus ride as, a, as an apology gift. And that was it. Another wrestling thing really quickly, because I was like really like brushing up on my swoggle moments last night, which of course brought me to WLC, which was a thing of beauty. So I have it hanging behind me, part of the table. And I always say like in my career, that's the best thing I'll ever do. Like I'll never top that ever in my life. I can't say it is because I have to say it's having my son. I think it's so special to me because it wasn't supposed to be. 
it was put out there like a joke match. It was put out there like, hey, this is going to be two midgets, one being a midget bull with little ladders and tables and chairs. It's going to be funny. And it was in New Jersey, which should have booed us because it's like one of the it's one of the biggest heel places in the country. They boo everything. It was on a pre-show of a pay-per-view, not on the regular show. It was just all signs pointed to this is going to suck. And we killed it. You guys really got to like get some stuff in from like head scissors, hurricane ranas to like you had like an amazing power bomb. Like you guys really got to work that night. And like having everyone with us too, Drew and Heath and Jinder on my side and the Matadors on the other side. Drew took that crazy table bump, like a solo table bump. For no reason, Drew running off the ropes and doing a flip to the outside through a table before the match. He goes, I think I'm going to flip through a table. And we all kind of stop and go, how? Like, he goes, well, let's just set one up. I'll flip through the off out of the ring onto it. I said, on to no one. He goes, yeah. Okay. And he did it for no reason. What was the conversation when you got to the back? Because I remember, like, I was obviously, I was there when that match happened. And it was like, really that moment of like, I, I must, I, must I, I would have been hosting the kickoff show for that. So we would have thrown to the match. But I remember like watching it through the monitors being like, holy shit, like this is done so well. What happened when you went back through Gorilla after that? It was my first standing ovation. I've never got one. I got like the good shit kind of thing, but it was my first standing ovation in, in Gorilla. I remember it like it was yesterday. I, I didn't change out of my gear until the main event happened. And like Torito was leaving the building. He goes, you're not going to change? I said, no, man. Because you okay? I said, I'm even better than you think. And it was just like, it was one of those nights where I knew it was awesome. And it was almost like I got to the back and I could say kind of fuck you to everyone because they never thought I could wrestle. No one did. They talked about Torito and I having a match. And so, but they wanted to see, they being WWE, like the officials, wanted to see me wrestle. And it was a locker room sellout because people wanted, I say it, people wanted to see me fail. The locker room wanted to see me fail, which is so fucked up. Everyone's around the ring. It was before the show at SmackDown and they wanted Torito and I just to wrestle around and see if I could keep up with them and just to see what I could do. Everyone was around the ring. And I remember looking at one of the corners of the barricade and Kofi and Dolph were at one of the corners of the barricade sitting back, just arms crossed, not with the group. And they both kind of give me a nod and we do it. And I say it, I'm patting myself on the back, but I, I, hung with them and I showed all those motherfuckers I could do it and I proved them wrong. Hey, I'm not just a guy that bites on the ass. I can wrestle. I get out and Kofi and Dolph are right there and they both kind of, they go, you proved them wrong. Uh, it feels really good. Well, to take you from a very high note, because it really was great and people that are listening, if you have not watched WLC, go watch it. It's really, really great. Um, Let's get into your release. What happened? It was a mass firing that they do. This was in 2016. It was two weeks before 10 years for me. They told me it was going to be six months and I lasted 10 years. Like, I can't be mad. The first person I called was Hawkins. Legitimately. I said, uh, hey, I got the call because he was released at the time. I said, hey, I got and I was sitting on my living room floor crying. It wasn't like a I lost my dream job. It was a, holy shit, I have a son. What am I going to do? He goes, get yourself up off the ground, open a pro wrestling tea store. You're going to be okay. He goes, let me call you back in an hour or so. 
Hawkins called me right then. He goes, Hey, got you 13 dates. It was like 20 minutes later. Again, we go back to how close and special our friendship is. He got me 13 dates in 20 minutes immediately, but it didn't hit me as a rejuvenation until a while after I couldn't rest on former WWE superstar. The chapter is going to close at one point or another for everybody. There's always that time. It's like time to move on to the next thing. What's that going to be? Where am I going to fucking land? And it can be that scramble moment of like, holy shit, I was making X amount of money. How am I going to get back to making that to like being busy to like all those things that you like instantly start like circling through uh, your brain, but to see people land and to be doing shit that makes them really happy and you just move forward. If I want to be home, I can be home. If I want to be gone, I can hopefully be gone. I'm my own boss. I can make my own fucking t-shirts with stupid shit on them. Half naked portraits of myself. Like, Wait, why don't I have one of those shirts? It's coming your way. <laughs> uh, but literally, it's, it's that kind of thing where it's like, this is fun. And I, I run my own company. I started that when I was off the road from WWE when creative had nothing for me, so to speak. And I got bored. I was like, hey, I'm going to start running shows here. Great. And now I focus on that. And I opened a training school because I was bored with WWE. So I started that. And it's like, again, I, I love being busy as much as it's, man, it wears me out. And every couple months, I'll text a couple of my buddies and I'll go, it's, uh, I'm, I'm getting to that point where the, the, the wear out, but something like kicks in, like I'll have a really, really fun night on Twitch, which is amazing. Or I'll have an awesome show for ACW, my company. It doesn't take much for rejuvenation. It's funny when that happens because I've had moments like that too. And you feel you're just like, oh my God, I've burned the candle on both ends. I'm fucking exhausted. But then something else comes that you're like, oh wait, no, I have more energy again. I'm good. I'm like ready to find the new thing. All of a sudden you have more energy for yet another thing on your plate when you were burnt out from everything you had before, which makes zero sense. Which is why you had time to write a book, right? Yeah. Which is such a great title, by the way. Life is short and so am I. What a great title. So I was approached after I got released to write a book. And three years later, we, we produced it. We talked about the bucket list thing. And we talked about marking things off a bucket list that weren't there. I know I have a good story to tell, like an interesting one. And things that people don't know about. But I'm lazy as shit at times. And I never wanted to write it myself. So thank God I had an actual writer. And I could just talk to them on the phone and be like, hey, this is what happened then. Because otherwise, I, I, I never would have done it. I, I truly never would have done it. But I'm glad it's there. Um, a lot of things in there about my, my birth mom uh, and her addictions and her just being a piece of shit. And about my late brother and about my upbringing, about my dad being so supportive and being the rock, not Dwayne, uh, that I needed. And me, relationship-wise, with females and with, with girlfriends and that, being a piece of shit, but now admitting it. Writing that, and I said it kind of during the interviews, like, it was the most freeing thing. I talked about my grandpa, who was my biggest supporter in life. He was my number one fan. And the chapter about him having to do the audiobook version of it. I bet you I told the person that was producing and recording it 10 or 12 times. I, I apologize because I was just bawling the whole time. 
this is, I get to let every emotion out about my relationship with my grandpa and how much I love him and how much he meant to me. It was the weirdest version of self-therapy ever. I've never went to therapy in my life, but that was the most. That must have been so hard to get through the recording of the audiobook version of it. That must have been rough. Like I talk about how if my birth mom passes away, I don't think I'm going to go to her funeral because she's not my mom. I got I like a cool thing last year or was it last year? Yeah. Last year, the year before COVID all runs together, as we know, I got adopted as an adult. Wait, what? I did not know that. My stepmom, like we filed the paperwork. And so I asked her on Mother's Day to be my mom and she didn't get it. Like I wrote her this happy Mother's Day card and I included like the shit we needed to fill out in there. Like you see on all these Facebook things, but from the parent, you see them. Uh, I did it as the child or as the 35 year old child, as I keep saying. And we went to the courthouse and it was amazing. It's almost like a brand new life. It's one of the coolest like adult things I've done. You know, life is always like growing and evolving and things. And she's been your mom since you were 13. But to like have this new, like rejuvenated relationship with her and to make it official and legal. And nothing's changed, but I just call her like, and I called her mom probably since Landon's been born. But now like calling her mom, like I called her mom and my sister-in-law heard me call her mom. She goes, you just called her mom. I said, yeah, she is especially legally now. And she just, we started laughing. It was just one of those things where now it's real. And now it's not just me calling her that. So my kid doesn't get confused. Oh, that's so cool. That's so sweet. Yeah. I I'm going to listen to the audiobook version of this. I don't do audiobook versions very often, but I feel like I want to hear you telling these stories. I'm so glad I did it. Cause I originally was like back and forth on it after doing it. I was like, man, I'm so glad I did it because I just thought of like Morgan Freeman his voice telling my story. Well, I mean, if you could have got Morgan Freeman, that would have been a nice added bonus, but... <laughs> yeah, if if you would have been, like, really impressed with how I said, fuck Peter Dinklage, and you'd be like, hey, Dylan, I want to do your story. I was just going to say, you know who's not doing it is Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage! <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, it's been so nice getting to catch up Thank with you. you, to see your face, and just see all of the things that you're doing right now. I, I love being able to have you on here and just have a little chit-chat with my buddy. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the week, enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full-length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see what you're hearing, head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there, and you can see us talking Having this interview, having a hangout, it's all up on there. Um, And that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well. So we can see you guys over there. And jump in the comment section, you know. Jump in, chime in, leave a comment. Uh, We like filtering through them all, reading about them. Maybe even like, I don't know, some constructive criticism if you had it. We're all ears. God, did I open up a can of worms by saying that? I don't know. Be nice. Be cool in there. This has been The Sessions.